This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, have you missed me? Oh, husky one. I've been very poorly. Probably the best lager in the world. Oh, the voice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll give you, I can play you a clip of what my voice sounded like two days ago. Oh, go on then. For full disclosure, I'm recording this bit the day after I recorded the part with Annabelle, and as you can hear, my voice has gone severely downhill. So that's what I sounded like on the other podcast this week. So your other podcast, you you, you got lucky. You got I lucky. The voice is lucky. coming back for this one, and in time for the live show. Yeah, and you were very generous with your advice. You told me to go to A and E and ask for steroids. It's true, I did. which which I didn't do. But on the health, Ed also warned me that if I was to take steroids for my uh, lost voice, and maybe I'd, I'd become depressed as well and i you know i don't i don't need steroids they have side effects these yeah so I, I gave them a wide berth but you re- recommended some vocal zone vocal zone fruit uh, throat pastels yeah. there are other throat pastels on the market <laughs> i hasten to add but those were the ones you would use for prime minister's question time yeah there was something else there was some kind of liquid as well what was that called sander sanderson or something the right. opera singers use mm. i think it's called sanderson or something I did get worried when you croaked at me on Tuesday. Yes, because we've got the live show, as you say, coming up on Sunday. We do, we do. Ed was worried that I might just have to sit there as a ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, I've got, I was thinking about who my alternatives might be. None of them were <laughs> as good as you. Uh, um, so um, exciting, the live show. People yes. who are listening to this uh, episode will hear it next week. It'll be out on Monday, the 5th of February. We're talking about mental health. We've got a great lineup, which I'm incredibly excited about. Ruby Wax, who's obviously a comedian. People know that, but she's trained as a psychologist. Uh, she's written and uh, she's got a new book um, out. She's written a book on mental health previously. Uh, George Ezra, the uh, singer songwriter who I'm a 
huge fan of and uh, has he's talked about mental health himself. You went for lunch with him this week. I went you? for lunch with him. I had a selfie um, in front of the Pit the Younger statue. Um, and uh, Jezza, Jeremy Corbyn, sort of, he kind of... He gate crashed. Snake sneaked in first <laughs> and got a, a picture with George. But George is very charming. Um, so when, when, you, when you go for lunch with somebody at the House of Commons, are you only allowed to invite one person at a time? <laughs> I did. I did think would, would about have been, this. Would have been nice. To, I did think about this last nice night along, when but... I sent you the text. I did think about this. I am incredibly sorry. Wow, that that sounds great. Uh, lunch at the House of Commons. Looking at that statue of Pitt the Younger. <laughs> I'm I mean, really sorry. I know. I know. I did think about this. I did think. I wonder no, that's, why. That's good to know. Good to I did think about it after the I event. I did think. Why am I? Why? Why wasn't Jeff there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I th- I thought that too. I thought you just couldn't make it, actually, because I was at death's door. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. we we just realised you, you were thinking he's got to preserve. We were thinking his about voice. you, actually. Yeah, we you. Were thinking, very, very we were thinking you. about you. Yeah. Um, so you so, had a nice time with George, and he's going to be on the live show. Yep. And then we've got uh, this isn't going to be a Sophie Hagen situation, is it? Uh, then we've got <laughs> the, then then, uh, then I had my shoes on. The, then we've. Um, <laughs> Then we've got Simon Wesley, who's the former president of the Institute of Psychiatrists. And then we've got Aisha Hazarika, um, who's uh, a fantastic a fr- friend comedian. of the pod. I think she can have friend of the pod. She is friend of the pod, yeah. Uh, she's-, she's coming back for a second time. Do you think with Simon at the live show, I can ask him about my various neuroses? Definitely. Great. I think that will be part of it. Yeah, we should get Including a- about whether you get invited to lunch by yeah. people. That's- we should get a couch up there on the stage with us. That's true, actually. Yeah. We should put the couch in. And so we've got a live show, not just the live show, but the... Well, but we've, we've, we've got into the rag trade, Ed and I. Um, so people have asked us, you know, over the months, um, are you going to do some T-shirts and so on? And we've been thinking other ways in which we can get the podcast to kind of wash its own face because, you know, we've got Emma who works on the on the show. There are various costs involved. I just want to be very clear here. Ed isn't one of those MPs who wants to get his nose in the trough. You're not looking to make money. Nope. There's no way that this is going to be siphoned into building a duck house or anything nope. like that for you. Nope. Do you promise? Promise. So I just want to be very clear in case people think, oh, here we go, old Miliband, you know. <laughs> What? He's making cut, cut gestures. But I'm being very clear. You are very clear. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to address this. Uh, this tar. This brush with which people tar all MPs. Yeah. You're not one of those guys. Nope. nope. A lot of integrity sitting opposite me. Definitely. Me I'm too. struggling to let the, uh, the the lunch with George Ezra thing go. But despite yeah. all that, I'm sitting opposite yeah. a good man. Yeah. And we've we've launched. Um, and a little uh, online store. So there are various reasons to be cheerful. Jumpers and T-shirts and tote bags and hats and the like. Um, and it's early days yet. I, t- I tweeted it a couple of days ago. And it'll be interesting to see which things are popular and which things aren't. So, for example, uh, we don't seem to have had much take up on I want to live in a Jeffocracy yet. I-, I think I've bought mine. Right. <laughs> I'm getting myself a borderline millennial T-shirt. You are borderline millennial. I know. I know. Uh, d- d- you, dis- you know, you slightly were exposed on the borderline millennial front because you kind of, you sort of. Uh- I think collectively we overreached on bully, really. You know, we we thought that b- our bullseye reminiscences 
we thought we thought that would sort of you know go or you let, thought it would let, go let, viral let, let me explain what we're talking about here so last week uh, you will have heard on the podcast doing ed doing his wonderful impersonation of bendy bully the cartoon bull from bullseye and i thought we should video that so we videoed it i edited it together and spliced it next to the real bully and i tweeted it and i thought oh you just wait this is going to be like ellen at the oscars this is going to be the most retweeted thing of all time and i'll be honest it had a very underwhelming <laughs> response and you tried to suppress it at first you told me i wasn't allowed to tweet it yeah i thought it was slightly kind of beneath my dignity <laughs> But then I realised I didn't have any. behind yeah, a long time exactly. ago. <laughs> exactly. Once I took up with you. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, Ed thinks the bully video was too retro. And because our audience is all borderline millennials, that they, they wouldn't have got the but reference. But also it's the contradiction between the, you know, there's a certain poignancy, isn't there, between the ordering of the borderline millennial T-shirt <laughs> and the bully epic fail. <laughs> we're um, we're going to be talking about prisons this week. Have you ever thought about how you would fare in a prison? Badly. I think I would be, you know, I think... Claustrophobia. I think I'd do okay, you know, by being the guy who helps the other prisoners with the homework. That's the little niche I think I could carve out in there. What do you mean the homework? I don't know. You see it in films. There's a library. There's a little trolley with books on it. There's some guy There's like some guy who hasn't had the advantages of education and then uh, another prisoner with spectacles, in other words, me, helps them and it would, becomes a beautiful friendship. Wouldn't you be do- doing like prison radio? Wouldn't you become like really popular and bits of prison radio and then you'd sort of end up at the end of the film, you'd become the prison governor in some sort of strange <laughs> kind of sort of you know, childhood fantasy sort of way and then you'd run the prison and everybody would be reformed and then, you know, you'd actually t- close down the prison because everybody would be rehabilitated. I can't tell you how that. much I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying this little daydream. Yeah. Yes. It's almost m- making me want to offend. Yeah, I think... But, d- pr- probably no, won't. Think yeah. Better not. So, um, so yeah, we're I mean, in all seriousness... It's, it's horrific it's when a you horrific, the numbers. It's a horrific situation. I mean, just to give you some few uh, facts, the UK has the highest incarceration rate in Western Europe with 150 inmates per 100,000 uh, people. So we've got a prison population of 86,000, including almost 4,000 women. That incarceration rate compares to 101 per 100,000 in France, 76 in Germany, 74 in Norway, and 53 uh, in in Sweden, the prison population has risen 82% in the last 30 years. Wow. Now, either we've become more criminal or something is wrong. It seems strange to me. So if you, no disrespect to Norway or Sweden, but those Nordic countries, they've, they've got the whole way of organising yeah. the society. So it's not surprising there's a big difference between yeah. us and them. But if you look at France and Germany, we're still like 50% higher than yeah. France. Yeah, and double and double Germany. Um, serious assaults in prisons have more than doubled in the last three years. Um, use of community sentences has halved since 2006, despite them being more effective at reducing reoffending. The prison service has lost almost a billion from its budget since 2011. Uh, frontline staff numbers are down by almost 7,000. Um, the majority who went to prison, 71%, had committed a non-violent offence. In 2016, 344 people died in prison, the highest on record, 120 of which were suicides. Uh, there were nearly there were 26,000 assaults, that's 500 a week, and riot teams were called out nearly 600 times, and there were more than 2,500 fires and 40,000 acts of self-harm. It's a pretty grim uh, story. It's horrendous. Uh, well, look, it rather suggests that we're right to be doing this as a topic, and I think it has been suggested by people. There's also this quote... 
So Winston Churchill said, show me your prisons and I shall say in which society you live. And that was quoted by uh, one of our guests, Nils Oberg, who's the director general of the Swedish Prison and Probation Service. Urberry. Nils. Urberry. Is that the pronunciation? So the the letter O at the beginning has got two dots over it. So it's not a letter O, it's the letter Ur. Sweden, Sweden has 29 letters in its alphabet. It has an extra three vowels, one of which is er. Amazing. Um, and also, <laughs> we're going to be talking to uh, Vicky Price, economist and author of Prisonomics. Vicky Price uh, wrote her book after being sentenced to eight months in prison for accepting her ex-husband's penalty points on her driving license from 10 years earlier. But she's going to be talking about what she believes should be done in terms of reforming prisons. And then we're going to be talking to uh, Charlie Faulkner, Lord Faulkner, who was the last Lord Chancellor and the first Justice Secretary, uh, somebody who believes that we do need big reform in the way prison policy works. I'll just say one other thing, which is I was talking to a Conservative MP this week who said to me that his wife was a big fan uh, of the podcast. And oddly enough, I then said to him we're going to be doing prison policy and he went straight to this issue of the political atmosphere and the press reaction to any reform, quote unquote, letting people out, community sentences going soft and all that. And I think one of the reasons we've got not just Nils and Vicky, who are, if you like, experts, but also we thought it was right to have Charlie on is because we've got to talk about the politics of this, because you can't talk this is this is an area which is so kind of where there's such a sort of toxic atmosphere in the in terms of the press and the way it's covered well it's a funny one isn't it because um sort of evidence and public attitude are quite a long way apart there's a thing from the national audit office saying there's no consistent correlation between prison numbers and levels of crime. And, you know, the, the press love running a story about how prisoners are, it's like they're at a luxury hotel, which is, you know, a long way from the yeah, truth. Yeah. But as, aside from that, you know, looking at what works in terms of rehabilitating people and bringing reoffending and thus the crime rate down. Yes, victims need to feel like they're, they're getting justice, but you also sort of have to look at what works, right? And also, and, how, you know, how do we navigate? I think the thing we've got to do, work out is... I think it's, it's an area where lots of people know what needs to be done, I guess. And we'll be hearing that from Nils and Vicky. But the question then is, how do you navigate the politics of this? And coming into pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Glenn Moore, who's really good. He's uh, he's hot on his topical stuff. And you may know him from the Absolute Radio Breakfast Show as well. More, more. I want more. Well, it's, it's happening. More, more, more. Good. Yeah. More, like not it? less. Yeah. Right. What's your reason to be cheerful? Oh, Ed, I've, I've barely done anything, but I did get to go and see Paddington 2 at the end of last week, which uh, I know I'm stealing your reason f- to be cheerful from about two weeks ago. Right. But uh, you, you're quite right. I mean, it is just unbridled joy, that is. film, isn't it? So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that very much indeed. My, my reason to be cheerful is that I am going to be on this commission that the housing charity Shelter is doing about the future of council housing, social housing in Britain. And it's a really good bunch of people that they've uh, assembled. The uh, vicar of the Notting Hill Methodist Church near Grenfell Tower is going to be the chair of it. That's Mike Long. Doreen Lawrence, obviously, you know, Stephen Lawrence's mother, who's also Baroness. Um, Saida Varsi, Conservative peer, sort of a Grenfell uh, survivor. 
uh, Edward Dauphin, um, a, a huge range of people that they've assembled. And the, the, the point of this is really twofold. One, we need a lot more social housing in our country. And I hope we're going to come forward with recommendations um, to, to, to try and make that happen. And then secondly, we need to hear the voices of council tenants properly in the way that their housing is run. And that's obviously one of the lessons of Grenfell. This isn't looking specifically at why Grenfell happened and all that. That's for the official inquiry. But it is trying to respond to that right, you know, rightful demand for change that we heard after Grenfell. I think the danger is when these tragedies happen, everybody at the time says, this mustn't be forgotten, we must act. But then it's very easy for the caravan to move on yeah. and people not to act. And so I, th- that's why I was you know, pleased to be asked to be doing this. I think it's an important initiative. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we're joined, I'm delighted to say, by Nils Oberg, who is the Director General of the Swedish Prison and Probation Service. Nils, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, hello and thank you very much for having me. Nils, if you were talking to a member of the public, either the Swedish public or the British public, and you had to explain the way you see the role of prisons? I know that's a quite a difficult question, but how would you explain the, your Swedish approach? Well, when we do that, we, you know, we start by, you know, pointing out that we're dealing with human beings and that, you know, our job is to, uh, to deal with those in our society uh, who are perhaps the most exposed and at risk. Uh, and, and, and a prison sentence is usually... Um, you know, and, 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 you know, at least in our professional view, increases the risks uh, of, of of reoffending unless you do something. Uh, so you have to have a strategy in order, uh, in order to figure out how to deal with all these issues that people have, and that in in the end uh, explains why they are committing crime. So if if the ultimate purpose is to increase security in society, you know, you not, you need to work with these people. And I think the the good news from our point of view is that most of the problems that people who commit crimes have are dynamic issues that can be fixed. You know, there's only one thing that we can't do anything about, and that's the criminal act that they have committed. That's done. You know, we can't do anything about that. But that's for the police and the and, and the prosecution and the courts to deal with. What we're dealing with is the future, and 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 we're de- dealing with human beings, and we're trying to fix their problems. And so, and how do reoffending rates compare with other countries? Well, we have, I think, uh, you know, we're proud of of, of what we're achieving. Um, we're now down to I think twenty nine point three percent of our um, um, of our offenders that reoffend within three years. So we measure not in a one-year span, but in a three-year span. And I think that's, you know, internationally, that's, that's a pretty okay uh, figure. I think the good news is that it's, it's been dropping for the past 13 years. So we were at, you know, I think, 40-some percent, um, and we're now down to 29, uh, so, and, and it's still dropping. So that's very good. But you have a different philosophy, don't you? You've, you've said to our profession, incarceration must always be the last resort. You you seem to take a different approach to quite a lot of offenders than we do. Well, I think we we decided at political level a long time ago that one of the one of the key tasks of a prison and probation system is to make people better uh, and to reintegrate them back into society. So, I mean, the, the, there's been a fundamental understanding in this country 
that people are uh, people are incarcerated for a fixed period of time, and then they will return back into society. And one of the advantages, of course, is that you can do a lot of things to try to address all the issues that people bring with them in, into uh, uh, you know into prisons. And we've had a we've had a great deal of focus on trying to deal with those issues over a long period of time. And that, that of course, I think makes a difference. And Nils, is, is that idea, that philosophy of, um, I guess, rehabilitation over punishment, is that something there is support for across the political spectrum? So you have a social democrat, uh, left-leaning government at the moment, but you also have the moderatoners who've been in government more recently. When there's a conservative government in power, do, do they apply the same philosophy? Is that the consensus uh, yes, I would say there's a there's a there's a broad con- political consensus on the fundamental ideas um, uh, that governs the way we carry out prison sentences in this country. Uh, I think there may be a difference in terms of um, how politicized uh, these issues are. Uh, the, you know, questions on 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 how we carry out our work has not been you know a focal point of 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 the political debate for a very long time it happens to be one now uh, in the upcoming elections in september this year but but it's the first time in many decades that these issues have been on the political agenda and what that means i think is that we have been able as a profession to take lead in terms of designing the, the kinds of programs and rehabilitation strategies uh, that we apply. It's not been a political issue, it's been a professional issue. I think I'm right in saying, Nils, that as well as doing the rehabilitation of prisoners which you talk about, which sounds very, very important and I suspect is very, it's quite different from what we do here, you're also less more more prone to using community and other sentences which don't involve people being incarcerated is that right yeah um, two thirds of those who who have a, a, a you know are sentenced will serve some kind of community sentence supervision um, and one third will be incarcerated and we also have very short prison sentences in in this in this country compared to many other uh, jurisdictions, um, and I think the idea behind that is that uh, you know prison. I don't belong to those who who say that prison sentences don't work. I think they work just fine, provided you are very careful with who are in the prisons, and that goes both for the inmates and the the staff, of course. So I think one of the keys is to make up your mind as to what the purpose of a prison sentence is, and and to make sure that you also fill it with meaningful activities during the time people are there. And what are the kinds of meaningful activities that people would be doing in Sweden, perhaps, that maybe they wouldn't get a chance to do in the UK? Well, one of the things that we can, we can see is that this is, a, this is a country of, generally speaking, well-educated uh, inhabitants. The people who come to us are not well-educated. They have huge lack of, of schooling. So one of the things that we prioritise is to try to fix that problem, uh, and that goes for basic schooling uh, as well as higher educational programs and vocational training programs. We know that half of the people that come to us have absolutely no connection with the labor market, for example. Uh, so that's another issue that we try to address um, during a prison sentence, to try to prepare people and to make them competitive in, in the labor market. That's very important. 
Um, and and tell me this, and it goes to the question that Jeff was sort of asking. Um, how much pressure is there from, for example, the newspapers in Sweden? Because one of the issues here, I'm not blaming the press, but one of the issues here is that when prison ministers or home secretaries of any party, justice secretaries, want to do something, they are immediately anxious that they're going to be said to be soft on crime by tabloid newspapers and so on. Do you have anything like, do you recognize anything like that in Sweden? Yes, I mean, I think what you're referring to is, is, is something that we see in many different countries, is the tough on crime rhetoric. And that's, that's all over the place, including in, in, in Sweden. Um, as I said before, one of the advantages I think we have is that we have, we have made a very clear separation of, of, of powers where much of the how we do things is, is tasked with the profession. So it's not subject to a political debate. You know, the politicians and the government, you know, we're a government organization like many others, and the government tells us what they want us to achieve uh, but then it's pretty much us to, uh, up to us to decide the best strategies to get there. And that's the profession. Um, and, and, and that means, I think, that, that if, if there is pressure on what we're actually doing in our, in our system, that comes directly to us rather than to our politicians. But the sentencing guidelines and so on would still be decided by politicians. Is that right? Absolutely. And we have the same, I think we have the same tough on crime debate as, as you do and, and, and as other European countries have. And, and I think we have, this, we have seen the same development over the past, I would say, 10 to 15 years with, with increasingly harsh um, harsher, you know, sentences for for serious crime, and the the government is constantly proposing new, you know, increased um, sentences for for serious crime. So we have the same kinds of, of of trends here as you do in that respect. And tell us about this. We haven't really talked about it. The treatment of the uh, staff, the prison staff, because. I think you've got your staff to prisoner ratio in your prison and probation system is almost one to one, I believe. Um, it 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 it's a, feels like a very different approach when it comes to the staff who work for the service. Is that right? Well, yeah, and 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 that's for us. That's key. I mean, if you if you have high ambitions in terms of doing meaningful things during a prison sentence, somebody has to do it. Uh, and that's going to be your staff. So unless you're well-staffed and the staff is well-trained, um, you know, your, your ambitions will never come true in, the, in, in this area. So that's one important uh, factor. The second one, I think, which should not be forgotten, is, is prison, um, the prison environment uh, as such. Uh, and, and we have invested a lot of energy and, and, and resources over the past 15 years in, in, in regaining control of our prisons. And what I mean by that is, for example, to, 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 um, to prevent drugs from entering the prison system. So we've had, uh, we've had an upgrade of our dynamic security uh, work over the past 15 years has been extremely important in order to create the preconditions for, for example, you know, qualified education or vocational training programs. If people are, are high on drugs or alcohol, uh, that's simply not going to be uh, an option. Last question from me, Nils. Um, you quoted in your a, a, re a recent lecture you gave in the UK uh, 
uh, former Prime Minister Winston Churchill, uh, who said, show me your prisons and I shall say in which society you live. Why is that an important thought, do you think? Well, I think it's an important quote um, because for somebody, I think, who is familiar with uh, the prison environment, it's very clear that what we're dealing with in our prison systems is a reflection of the society um, on the outside. It's not, it's not a different world. It's the same world. So the, all the challenges that we face and all the problems that we're dealing with and all the, you know, all the, 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 the issues that we see with the people that we're dealing with are exactly the same issues that you will find in the society on the outside. And so it's not, not something different. It's exactly the same. And that's also why I think any society that focuses on increasing security for its citizens are going to have to pay attention to what's being done within the prison system. You know, it's the same. We live in the same world. It's the same people we're talking about. Neil Zoberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're joined now by Vicky Price, an economist and author of Prisonomics, and Charlie Faulkner, Lord Faulkner, for, former Lord Chancellor and former Justice Secretary. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank uh, you. Vicky, let's start with you. Your book, Prisonomics, outlines some of the very serious problems with the prison system in the UK. And you're, you say in the book that prison doesn't work, it's not value for money. Can you explain to our listeners what you see as the main problems with the system? Well, the interesting thing is if you look at uh, the, the increase in the population that go to prison, uh, that has been very significant. It's doubled in the last 25 years. Uh, I'm afraid it did double uh, or it rose very, very quickly under Labour too. So that was, in fact, what started all off the, the attempt to, uh, by Tony Blair and others to be seen as tough on, on, on crime and um, a party to be trusted by the electorate in this respect. Uh, but while this was going on, of course, crime rates have been falling and falling quite significantly and not because people have been going to prison, but for other reasons. Uh, so if you look at it from the economic point of view, it's because we were becoming richer as a nation. Uh, or people get, were getting older. So, in fact, the, the top age for crimes is 24, 25. Uh, and in addition, there's been a lot of technology that has been introduced, such as uh, better alarms. Now, of course, people can get into cars again a little bit more easily, so that needs to be upgraded. But basically, you couldn't steal a car as easily. You couldn't burgle houses as easily. So technology has actually uh, changed things uh, significantly, uh, as it has, for example, in stealing from shops because of the, the way in which uh, the, automa the automated cashier uh, tills now work. So so uh, crime had been going down and yet we've been putting a lot more people in prison. So you wonder, uh, first of all, whether it made any sense and whether people were going to prison for different reasons rather than necessarily to reduce crime. And the other thing, of course, is that if you look at all the evidence that's available, it shows very, very clearly that prison is not a deterrent for crime. Uh, what is a deterrent is if you are absolutely certain you're going to be caught. And look what's going on right now, for example. Burglaries have gone up very significantly because the police simply doesn't turn up to do their job at all on this. Uh, they have different areas of focus. So uh, people don't think they will get caught, and actually they don't. A very, very small percentage of people uh, go through the justice system. Right. And do you see lots of people, from your analysis, are there lots of people in prison who are in prison and shouldn't be? And who are they? Oh, well, the one element, of course, that I have seen is uh, is women uh, who have done something relatively trivial, very often 
in order to respond to pressure from from uh, others, particularly the pimps or other men in their lives. So, uh, and those crimes can be quite trivial in the sense of you know, stealing. In some cases, of course, they are more worrying, such as drugs. Um, but again, what you need to be looking at is is what is it that gets them to the point of of committing this crime? Um, uh, second, whether there's any point at all in putting them in prison rather than doing something about their conditions. Uh, many of them are drug addicts or they suffer from alcohol abuse. And many of them are uneducated. In fact, almost half of the women who go to prison, half of all the prison population has no uh, qualifications whatsoever. Uh, and, um, uh, and of course, they very often have been subjected to domestic physical abuse and other type of abuse. So they are vulnerable before they commit the crime and therefore they should be treated in a different way to ensure that they don't, when they come out, commit the crime again because that defeats the purpose of the exercise. And what would you like to see done in terms of changes to prison policy, both on women in prison and more generally? Well, more generally, in fact, you need to be looking at education and employment. Uh, again, the evidence shows that the higher... Uh, the education level of a person is, and if they have jobs, which of course, if they go to prison, they come out, they're very unlikely to get one. Uh, that tends to reduce crime, and given that reoffending in particular, uh, when people come out of prison, is very high. Um, that costs the economy huge amounts of money every year. It's estimated between nine and thirteen billion a year. This is reoffending rates. Reoffending rates. Well, you should do something else, and what. Uh, of course, has already happened, uh, is that there's been a lot of pressure on having, for example, women's centres, doing things with women rather than sending them to prison, uh, helping them beforehand, and also if they do commit a crime, dealing with them in a very different way uh, to ensure that they get um, the skills and the ability uh, just to function in society and and perhaps also contribute to society in the future rather than go to prison, come out and actually get worse as a result rather than better. Why are our numbers per 100,000 people, uh, uh, per 100,000 population so much higher than other comparable countries? So we're almost double Germany. We're not just talking about countries where inequalities are focused like Norway or Sweden, but comparable European countries. They're putting far fewer people in prison than us. Why are we doing that? What evidence are we using? We didn't used to do that. Uh, we were actually pretty much average just 25 years ago. And if you look even further back, there was a bigger attempt to reduce the number of people in prison uh, around wartime, for example, and so on. Uh, and that worked. Now, why there should suddenly have been this change, I'd put it down to politics, I'm afraid. It is that there was a Labour Party there that wanted to uh, be seen to be more middle of the road, more right wing, and therefore attract uh, the votes. Uh, and all sorts of things happened. Uh, sentences were increased. There are many more right now, offences that you can go to prison for. And of course, we have seen all sorts of new things uh, emerging, such as uh, sexual abuse, uh, historic sexual abuse and other uh, cybercrime. We haven't quite uh, got our head around of yet. I think there are very few convictions there. Um, but there has been a, a, an increase in the in the sentencing um, time scales, in other words, uh, where life before could have meant just uh, eight, ten years. Now it's considerably longer than that. And there's been also a reluctance to let people out on uh, on leave. Uh, you can actually get permits to to not spend time in prison, but actually be part with, back with your family. Uh, a lot of that proved for quite some time harder to get under various regimes, actually reinforced by by the Conservative government. Charlie, tell us in your view, are there too many people in prison? 
There are too many people in prison, yes. Uh, and who are the people that shouldn't be in prison? I think are? the two groups of people who shouldn't be in prison are the persistent offenders where all, you've can, all you can do is send them to prison because everything else has been tried, and also those who are defaulting on sentences that are outside prison. They break the rules, then they come into prison. So they shouldn't be in prison? They shouldn't be in prison because what you've got to do is focus much, much more on trying to keep people out of prison by having sensible alternatives to it. Vicky is right that uh, Labour supported, but so did the Conservatives, from about the end of the 80s, much harsher prison sentences. But I think it reflected society's... Michael prison. Howard did this prison Michael work, Howard didn't did, but, he? Yeah, but then Tony Blair said, tough on crime, yeah. tough on the cause yeah. of the crime. They both did it. But they were reflecting not just the normal view that people have, we want to be tough on crime. People want criminals to go to prison who are dangerous. But also because society's attitudes changed to things like sexual violence. So whereas in the ni- in the mid 80s you might get 2 to 3 years for a rape the way that sentencing went the 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 figures for rape went up to sort of 7 years as the sort of starting point and everything went up if you asked people now do you think the the sentences for violence or for sexual violence are right or wrong I mean, interestingly, when you do a study, you say, well, what what would you, as a member of the public, give this rapist or this person who's violent? They normally give about a sort of double what the courts give them. You've got to be able to cope with the fact that, as a society, we've got to be able to reflect what people's views are on those things. But what do you do with a with a drug uh, addict who repeatedly commits burglary? You've got the crappiest sort of probation arrangements getting even more crappy as less money is spent on them. You've tried everything. Nothing works. The, 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 the courts have ultimately to send these people to prison. You give somebody probation who you haven't sent to prison. You say you've really got to comply with the instructions that you've been given. They don't. How do you make that a real sentence? You've got to send them to prison. But can we just draw a distinction here, and, and forgive me if this is an ignorant question, between the people who commit violent offences and non-violent offences? Because as I understand it from the figures, 70 percent of the people in prison have committed a non-violent offence. Yeah. So, so you know, some people might think, well, you know, life shouldn't mean six years or what, whatever. But, but most of the people who are in prison are not people who've committed sexual violence or murder or anything, aren't they? Well, the reason why the prison population doesn't go down is because people are now in for very much longer. What happens where you've got a penal system that does not have an alternative? Once you've tried everything and everything out of prison is basically crap. And Vicky's point, when you get when you're discharged from prison, there's absolutely nothing that's been done in prison to help you. You've got no support when you get out. So you come straight back. I mean, if you if you're confronted with somebody who has committed 27 domestic burglaries and domestic burglaries, people are very upset by domestic burglary. You can't just say, sorry, we've tried everything. We give up. Off you go. It's a failure to to stop the reoffending that is the problem. Correct. Or having a, having an alternative that people would think will make a difference. The courts, the magistrates' court and the and the crown court, they're losing confidence big time in alternatives to prison. So they do a case. The the people say this person burgled my house. Uh, you know, took photographs. I've never recovered. Yeah. I felt terrible. My children were very very upset for weeks and weeks and weeks. What do the courts do? Are they supposed to say, well, obviously you shouldn't go to prison because they'll just make you worse, which it will. We'll just sort of let you off with a non-custodial penalty, knowing that everybody in the room, in the courtroom, thinks, well, that's just letting the guy off. So it's very, very difficult. 
there needs to be a fundamental rethink. It's the sort of stuff that, you know, Gove was talking about there needs to be a fundamental rethink. This is Michael Gove when he was Justice Secretary. Precisely. And, but, I mean, it was complete, you know, hot air because you're never going to make any difference in prison if the prisons are so awful that, I mean, I don't know if you saw the stuff about Liverpool the other day, it was the worst prison inspection ever. They'd opened up cells that every thought were unsafe. There isn't enough prison officers. You're ne- if, if what you're trying to do is stop people stabbing each other in prison, you're never going to get to any rehabilitation thing. There needs to be a fundamental rethink. You mentioned in the introduction that um, uh, I was the justice uh, we're in charge of prison for two months. For two months, right? actually six weeks, I think. Six actually. weeks. A very, very short period of time. And at the moment I became... Did you make any difference in the six well, weeks? The, probably the, not much the moment, the moment I became Justice Secretary, Mr Philip Wheatley, who was then in charge of the prison service, came to see me. And he said, I don't know if you know this, but every afternoon between 4.30 and 7, when people are sentenced to prison or remanded in custody, there are Serco vans circling the M25, waiting to be told where... There is a gap in the prisons for them to go to. And if you do not, he said, wagging his finger at me, reduce the prison population, I will, without warning, say the prisons are now too full and you've got to do something about it. Uh, The political incentive to do anything about improving conditions in prison is nil because the prime minister and the chancellor uh, are always thinking, I don't want to spend money on making prison conditions better. But if you don't do something about it, you're not going to make any progress in dealing with it. But of course, it's not making them better. The reality is that the the, the ministry's uh, budget has been cut and yes. cut again. It's yes. one of the easy ones to do, and therefore you're left with the with the prison, uh, not just the prison population, but but the officers uh, who are themselves demoralised. Yeah. So so my my serious view is that the majority of the prison officers. Uh, are doing the job as best as they can, and they they try to treat uh, prisoners with dignity. But if you have absolutely no uh, money to have enough officers there, particularly in the weekends, to take uh, prisoners to various places such as education and 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 also some sort of leisure activities that they need to do to remain sane, um, you just make the the whole process worse. Yeah. We've got this thing called the Jeffocracy on this podcast, yeah. which is Jeff ruling the world. Let's say that in the Jeffocracy, he decides to make. Lord Faulkner and Vicky Price, the joint, jointly joint justice secretaries in charge of the prisons. The prisons. What would you? What would you do? The first thing is that you you would actually uh, start to get the public on your side. And the interesting thing is, if we're thinking back of what was going on when Michael Gove was there, is that there was a series of of uh, um, reports uh, in the quite right-wing papers, which were beginning to say that prison doesn't work, and that's certainly putting women particularly in prison, given the huge costs in terms of what it means for their children, uh, who end up in care and then they commit crimes themselves. So actually the cost of society is enormous. So there started to be a debate which seemed to be accepted. And of course, if you remember, I mean, Cameron went behind all that and said, was behind behind him and said, yes, absolutely, this is this is so. So you, you, you have to educate the public up to a point. There is no way you can do it and risk completely your political career if if you don't get the backing of, of everyone else. So is the public sort of default position, yes. lock them up and throw away the key? Uh, absolutely. And of course, what the public doesn't realise is that people who walk around them are are or have done are criminals themselves in inverted commas very well, very large percentage have done exactly I, I, that i, I, I don't i, I don't agree public, with that i think the public have a i think when the public are worried about sentencing i suspect it's well it's not only about this but it's a lot about more serious crime yeah i quite I agree with that yes but unfortunately the way that it works is that lots of people end up 
in not uh, not having done serious crimes in there. So you need to educate the public about that aspect of it. And that was what all those articles over that period were, were about. Of course, uh, you have to deal with violent crimes seriously. But even you know, before Holloway closed, the governor of Holloway, which is a, was a women's prison, uh, was saying that out of about 450 uh, women who were in there, only perhaps 50 should be in there. Right. The rest were no threat to society. Right. And I think it is important to, to bear in mind that, uh, as I said earlier, because very few people, a very small percentage, actually goes through the criminal justice system, there are loads of people out there that you see when you walk down the street who have either already been in prison, come out, or have already committed an offence, or others who have simply not gone near it. And so I think the second thing that is important to explain uh, is that, in fact, the rehabilitation matters or or taking people away from proper work and so on actually leads to worse results. And if you want to reduce crime, which costs you hugely, you need a different approach than sending people to prison. So my first thing would be work towards actually halving the prison population over a period of time and certainly thinking of categories that no longer have a jail sentence attached. You've really got to be tough on violent crime and sexual violence. And as a politician, you should rightly reflect that and say absolutely no budging on that. And if you are, and it's not just about sending people to prison, it's also about ensuring there's a lot of effort put into that as far as the police are concerned. You need really to focus on non-custodial interventions and interventions in prison for people who do go to prison and support after they come, which is quite intense. The experience of being the justice minister is that interventions to work have to be quite intense. And and, take money. And take money. What you can never do, even though the the transaction is obvious, as as Vicky says, if you switch a bit money from prisons to non-custodial interventions, then you would have a situation where you would have less people in prison. The problem is you've got people in prison at the moment, and we've got that difficulty now. The government has outsourced um, uh, probation. It's terrible now because, I mean, the only intervention now is you ring up your probation officer and say, I'm still around. That's not going to make any difference as far as people are concerned. So this is for people who are out of prison? Those people who are given non-custodial sentences, alternatively those who've been in prison and are released on licence. What community sentences work, though? The ones that work are ones that, for example, require you to to do various bits of cognitive therapy, ones that involve some degree of training, ones that involve somebody, for example, saying, look, let's help you get work, let's help so you get... So it's less about restitution to the victim and more about making Absolutely. sure you don't re-offend. And that's, the guarantee, that's what Nils was saying to us. That's the sort of guarantee of security to people. Look, we're going to make sure this person doesn't offend again. Precisely. But it does. you, you can't do it on the cheap. You've got to do it. So the, the, the government has got, I honestly think, a huge opportunity that's going to be forced on them. The, 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 the state of the prisons at the moment is absolutely catastrophic and catastrophic. Those who know think it's worse than it was before Strange Ways. Strange Ways was a huge riot that went on for absolutely days because, as Vicky is saying... In the right, 1980s. In the 1980s, that's right. And, and the, 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 what Vicky's describing is prison officers are doing their best, but ultimately the way it works is you've got, say, three prison officers having to manage a wing of maybe 150 offenders, many of which are violent. It depends upon trust and it depends upon mutual respect. That goes, if you're locked up in your cell for 23 hours a day and there are cockroaches, as the recent thing, uh, I, the recent inspectorate report identified in Liverpool and Nottingham, that are chewing away at you. 
there's going to be a huge explosion. The extent to which there are prison riots or things short of prison riots going on month after month is not sort of breaking through. The government has got to act. It's going to be forced to act. It should invest money both in better prisons and more prison officers, but it should also invest money in the support for prisons when they come out and non-custodial sentences. But the interesting thing is that it is much cheaper to do that support um, outside the prison than it is putting people in prison. I mean, it actually costs something like uh, you know, education at, at a very uh, top private school per year to put somebody in prison. Right. And then, of course, if you also... It's hard to believe that, women, isn't it? Because, it because is extraordinary. Of the, the quality, I mean, I can't believe that Pentonville has the same conditions as Eton. It is actually cheaper and the reoffending rate is considerably less from every um, alternative to prison that has been piloted. So instead of spending £35,000 per person, you spend up to 10, between, you know, five really? to 10. The agenda that me, me and Vicky are talking about, it, it's I have a sort of sense politically that it's time maybe about to come in the sense that Trump, with some right-wing governors uh, in, in the United States of America, the governor of Kentucky and the governor of Kansas, both made a quite significant intervention the other day saying you've got to focus much, much more on rehabilitation. I think because he understands, particularly looking at what's called his base, that they, the people in his base, are aware that the extent to which you are a defendant, the extent to which you are a victim, is interchangeable. And that if Trump and the governor of the Republican governor of Kansas and the Republican governor of Kentucky are saying things need to change, Mrs. May because it ultimately depends upon the prime minister driving it, has an opportunity. We've reached the point um, where austerity is actually a good thing uh, from that point of view because it will force uh, the government it's to do something about it. Point. It's a crisis point. Yeah. And therefore, and if you can't afford to keep these people there and you get those terrible reports like we just got from Liverpool, for example, yeah. uh, then you, you've you got to act. And and since there is no real money, and now, of course, look at what happened to all these PFI contracts um, for, for, for prisons and so on, um, if there is no money to to really build wonderful, enormous new prisons that they intended to do, then then one has to look at the evidence and say it doesn't make any sense to put these people there. Well, we should do something with it. And and given that 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 it actually leads to a reduction in crime, it could be a win win. But as I was saying earlier, you've got to sell it in a certain way that is acceptable to your own party and, of course, to the population as well. I'm wondering about whether or not if 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 Kansas, Kentucky and Trump are yeah. for it, maybe it won't be... Let's just it. talk about the politics for a second, Charlie, because yeah. it, it was in particular you had experience of this. Talk to us about prison ships. <laughs> the politicians not engaged in this area are just sort of one club politicians. They're not interested in it. They're exactly as Vicky uh, and you've been saying. They're just saying basically go anywhere in prison reform and that loses your votes basically the only when i was when i was uh, became the justice minister i was rung up both by the prime minister and the chancellor tony blair and gordon brown tony blair and gordon brown and asked would i look at the issue of prison ships and why was that Charlie? Well, because the reason they in fact rang me up i have reason to believe is because the editor of the sun at the time was interested in it. so the only thing that sparked the politicians to get into this issue was uh, uh, did you speak to the editor of the sun about prison no ships? i did not you didn't no and i went and uh, i looked into the question of prison ships they are for a whole variety of reasons 
completely ludicrous <laughs> as an idea. And indeed, I mean, uh, this prison ship thing didn't go away, did it? Because Ken Clark <laughs> became the Justice Secretary in 2010 when David Cameron and, was the Prime and Minister. He was summoned to a meeting with Rebecca Brooke. Correct. That's about right. prison ships. Yeah, prison ships are, are, are they're, they're, I think, a sort of symbol to the Sun newspaper that to be really tough on crime is to put people in the middle of. The prison ships supposed to go to Australia or just, <laughs> no, leave them in the middle there somewhere. I think I think it was intended that you should be taken onto the prison ship, probably left in the Thames Basin. It seems oh. extremely <laughs> problematic. Very problematic, very much more expensive than an ordinary prison, very difficult to make secure for a whole variety of reasons, and safety in sight. If there was, for example, a prison riot in a prison, uh, on a prison it ship, bad news. it would be extremely bad You news. told the Prime Minister for the chance this was a cracker's idea, did you? I did, and at that, which point they lost interest completely in prison. And you soon <laughs> lost <laughs> Six weeks later, I was gone as Justice Secretary. No, actually, it was, it was exactly that. That wasn't cause and effect. Who knows? So so before we recorded last week's podcast, I had my iPhone grabbed out of my hand by a guy on a moped. Now, I don't think that guy should go to prison. But from what you said to me. (laughs) Yeah, throw away the key. (laughs) Hanging's too good for them. Um, But but, but from what I understand, the police, there's not very much they can do they can't give chase because they're worried uh the you know if one of these people uh get into an accident then that will be their responsibility it's happening so often they've got no way of keeping tabs on it really but they're uh, not even around to be seen i mean that's the real problem so uh, please let's, let's conjure a scenario for you we find the person yeah. that stole jeff's phone and yeah. we find they've stole 30 other phones and we find that they in their house 30 iphones that are not theirs yeah right in the vicky charlie world in the Jeffocracy, what happens to them? Well, my view, we assume he's not had any previous conviction, then you don't send him to prison. What you do is you subject him to an intensive campaign of trying to make him go straight in relation to it. Because what you want to achieve by your penal policy is that there shall be no more thefts she wouldn't go to prison at the, or she wouldn't go to prison at the she moment. She would not go to prison. Well, actually, there's a period of time when uh, the mobile phone theft was incredibly high. The Lord Chief Justice, Lord Bingham, sentenced somebody to nine years in prison for the first offence of stealing a mobile phone, which had an effect on reducing the amount of mobile phone thefts. But every realised that was a little bit severe, and I would not support that. You need to do a non-custodial sentence for somebody if it's the first offence. And the, But that the, happens at the moment. Uh, it would normally happen at the moment, but then nothing would happen. So what we say is some sort of community payback, go and dig the roads for 10 minutes, or a fine... Would that happen at the moment? Uh, that would happen at the and moment. The, and that doesn't have any effect, because they no dig effect. the roads and then go out and carry on stealing mobile Exactly, they, they dig the roads for once a week, or even worse, they put in probation, which means they ring their probation officer, who say, thank you for a good afternoon. And, and if they repeat offending at the moment, they would end up in prison. Precisely, because there's no alternative. Okay, and in the Vicky, what would you say? Repeat. Let's say they're a repeat offender, just to okay. make yeah. it more difficult. Well, I accept that you have to do something to yeah. stop that repeat uh, offending that goes on because then you know they of course think they're not going to get caught so they do it again yeah. and again and then they do get caught uh, which happens very often with violent crimes you get caught with lots of other stuff you 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 don't as much but I would do um, certainly you know after the first one possibly even with the first one you give a suspended sentence 
you make them pay something back over a period of time if they haven't got it immediately. You actually impose different types of penalties on people, which doesn't take them necessarily away from their work and actually gives them an encouragement to do something better but in I mean, the future. At the moment, that you know, there's the case of the person who was given a suspended sentence and then on Facebook said, ha-ha, I got away with it. The judge, as it happened, then pulled him back and sentenced him to prison on the basis that that's not what she, the judge, was intending. But if you've got nothing to offer except hopeless community penalties outside, then people will reoffend, and everybody will think they're getting away with it until they go to prison. And that's why you've got to invest not in digging the roads, but in something that's going to make a difference. Uh, Labour introduced the Youth Justice Board in 1997, and there were intensive support and life-changing interventions made. And you think incarceration did actually fall, did it, as a result of the Youth Justice Board? Reoffending. Re-offending. This is exactly what we want, is the reoffending that we don't want to happen. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, putting them in prison doesn't help. But if you have the other services, the women's centres that were started, which got very little funding in the end, or at least are under threat right now, um, are the ones which have a very good track record of of ensuring that all those problems are dealt with for 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 women, uh, and that they can then become proper members of the community. And and work is really 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 important. One of the things that I do is I'm a patron of a charity called um, Working Chance, which finds quality jobs for ex offenders. And the the and that is a the, massive the, problem, isn't it? Because uh, they absolutely. get they have it on their CV that they or not CV, but it gets known about that they were a prisoner. Exactly, uh, and and then it's very hard to it's, get a job. And without a job, you can't rebuild your life. And yeah. what do you do? You reoffend. Can I give you another example? So I, I got ripped off by one of these show business accountants, and he ended up going to jail for six months. And I can feel quite bad about that because I think he's a guy who had some kind. That's of... That's why Jeff ended up with me. Basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and. Like what should have happened to him? Like he can't practice accountancy anymore, and his life is ruined. So I sort of feel like that's that's enough. Like what, what happens to someone like that? I mean, in in my book, if, I mean, it depends on the scale, obviously. But for a guy who rips people off like that, you've got to financially break them, bankrupt them, which I think take is what every happened. asset that they have stolen from people like you and give it to people like you. But prison is a completely pointless. Uh, uh, alternative that there might, you know if 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 you're made off and you've run off with millions and millions of pounds then maybe you, you might have to send people to prison there but for financial crime generally do not send people to prison i agree with that and and again i mean the interesting thing is that the people who get caught in this uh so there are young girls working in an office where things are passed through them and somehow or other they get also uh, associated with this uh and they end up in prison uh, so it's completely pointless. Ruins the lives forever. So different different ways of dealing with it have to have to be looked at. And then, of course, you you put them right next to violent criminals, uh, and that can have quite a substantial impact on life. Where does the idea that prisons are luxurious come from? I'll still get taxi drivers saying to me, oh, they, it's like being in a luxury hotel in prison with flat screen TVs. Uh, well, the, the I think it comes from the picture of open prisons. I think it comes from the fact that... There are very few of those, by the way. There are very few of those, I agree. It also comes in part from people like Grayling, 
super and this is not a political point but it's a superficiality of saying let's take away sky tv books he tried to ban books and books <laughs> but and giving the impression that they're all watching television and reading books I mean, which is not the height more, of but also what could be more contrary to the idea of rehabilitation than banning books yeah. exactly but it's but it's it's part of this one dimensional view that you've got to be tough on all prisoners and when 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 you are living in a community and you can see people going into prison who, as I say, might be victims, might be defendants. People with a bit more knowledge, including people in communities, realise it's not like that at all. But there have been uh, um, television programmes showing conditions in, in various prisons and very good ones too. I think it should be required watching by the taxi drivers if that's what you're worried about. I want to ask you both one final question. You've been appointed co-justice secretaries in the Jeffocracy. It's going well. You've set, out your, <laughs> you've set out your plans. Ex- think about the public who are listening and explain to them why it's in their interest to have this prison reform. There will be less crime in the future, if that is the case. And that's the main reason. There is just no doubt in terms of looking at the evidence that uh, by educating people better, by not putting them in prison, by doing the right uh, rehabilitation, if you want to call it that, um, you end up as a richer society with less crime. Yeah, and you're reflecting as well what the public are thinking. We will be tough on violent and sexual offenders, but we will be helping people, as exactly as Vicky says, to reduce crime, and you'll be safer as a result. Well, I'm pleased to say that you've both got the job. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much for joining us. What do you reckon then? Well, there's a lot of moving parts. Currently, it sounds like we've got the priorities of each of those things slightly wrong. I suppose the thing very I, wrong. the thing I learnt from this is that of, often these things are sort of thought about separately, but maybe justice demands the rehabilitation of the offender more than I really. In other words, if the offender isn't rehabilitated, they're probably going to do it again. Yes, and therefore, okay, you might not have your phone stolen again, but somebody else is going to, and therefore, an element of justice for the victim is a sense this won't happen again or this yeah, person absolutely. won't do it again and i think it's i think that's the thing i learned the most which is you know pe- we people often talk about non custodial t- uh, uh, non custodial sentences and this is, we are talking about non violent offenders i think and non custodial sentences that sounds like you know community service or whatever but even more important than that is well what happens to the person you know sweden sounds like it invests a lot of money in stopping that person reoffending. Yeah, and it was very interesting the way that Nils framed it as well in in terms of that stuff that we we're just talking about, like the, the the justice and the punishment. That's the job of the police and the you know the equivalent of the Crown Prosecution Service. And as somebody working with prisons and prisoners, his his job is specifically that rehabilitation, not any of the rest of it. Yeah, and and then there's the politics of it. Um, and you know, Charlie obviously thinks that the politics is changing. What's happening with the Repu- right wing? You know, some right wing Republicans now saying, and admittedly, America is through the roof when it comes to the prison um, population. Um, I think there's even a character on Sesame Street whose whose father is in prison. I right, mean, yeah, yeah. It's so common in uh, in the US. Um, I th- I hope he's right. The politics is changing. I think he's right to say violent offenders are in a different sort of category feels to me like he's right the politics is changing a bit but there's still some distance to go i actually began to wonder at the end of that interview whether it's not another area where it would be great to have people like him and former conservative like ministers in charge of this area coming together to say right we've got to have change because maybe a cross-party thing will insulate 
both parties a bit from being, you know... I also think the public love that. If they get the idea that politicians from different parties can be grown-ups and work together, I think that reflects very well on the on the politics and sort of increases yeah. public trust in it. Yeah, I don't think we should underestimate this area. I know we said it at the start, but this area of all areas, you are definitely, if you're in that job of prisons minister or justice secretary, you know, you've got the tabloids breathing down your neck. And and, and it's not just, that sounds a bit like the person's weak, but but it, you, I think the problem is, as Charlie implied with prison ships, you then get the prime minister breathing down your neck saying, why am I get why am I, I know, why am I getting you know, grief in the newspapers for some policy I don't even know about for, you know, people and, and all that. And I think that the key point is, of this is that this isn't simply sort of liberal do-gooding. It, it would be, you know, Vicky's point, this is better for all of us if there's less crime and there's less reoffending, and it costs the economy less money and, and all of that. So, you know, this isn't – people can have their own views about whether people should be incarcerated, who should be incarcerated, but this is actually going to make economic and financial and moral sense. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As ever, we would love to hear your thoughts on what you've just heard, or if you've got an idea for a future episode, share that with us too. You can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful. It's interesting the Pod Save America people, they do slash. Do they really? Yeah. So you're, you're, maybe it doesn't have the same connotation slash. But slash slash isn't this nice? We, why do we keep coming back to this? Who prefers a slash to a stroke? Forward slash. <laughs> right. We've had some. Uh, we've had lots and lots of emails about the NHS. Um, yes. It was a. It was. It was longer than Ben Hur our episode, um, for which you rightly apologise. But actually, it has not um, diminished people's enthusiasm. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, this is from William, who's a. Uh, junior doctor he's been there a junior doctor for over a decade i'm about to finish my training 
He said, as an aside, Jeff has been making me laugh on the radio for all that time. And Ed has some catching up to do. So that's a nice boy to man. That's a nice thing to uh, say. He says, it's great to hear all your guests advocating for more funding for the NHS, which is something we on the inside have been saying for many years. The current underfunding of some services to the point where they are almost unable to function has politicised the whole generation of junior doctors almost as much as a contract debacle a couple of years ago. And then he says what's changed is that across the political spectrum, people are calling for more uh, resources. He says the question of where the extra money comes from is a tricky one, and he wants to propose a novel solution. I've wondered about introducing a discretionary or optional charge for using the NHS, a bit like the optional donation that gets suggested when you go to a museum or the service charge on a restaurant bill. My idea is there will be a suggested optional charge, say five or ten pounds, seeing a GP or a specialist or having a test. People who didn't wish to pay the charge could simply decline, but I don't believe many people who could afford it would do so. I've often heard patients say they would like to contribute for services they've received in the NHS, but there's currently no direct mechanism for doing this. I thank you, William, for your email. I am pretty skeptical about this. I think for a number of reasons. I think I think one, we all do pay for the NHS through our taxes. Secondly, I fear it would make people who couldn't afford it feel sort of uncomfortable yeah. because it's like you're not really doing your bit if you're not contributing. And then I'm also really suspicious about politics because I think the I think the magic of the NHS comes from that it isn't about money. And it isn't about leaving your credit card at the door. I think once this came in, politicians would say, well, lots of people are paying it, but some people aren't. Now we should make it compulsory. And then you're, you're, you know, you're right down the slippery slope. I mean, look, I appreciate the creativity. I don't, I don't quite buy it myself. Yeah, you don't want politicians sort of saying, "Oh, look, there's there's a, a pot of money we we don't need to factor into our budgets." And it's sort of this the the free at the point of use. I think is so. It's such an important... Yes. It just feels like su- such an important thing. Yeah. Um, this comes from Jack, who says, just wanted to get in touch and say how much I enjoyed the NHS episode. My dog has been very unwell, so I spent most of the night downstairs with him in case he needed my attention and listened to this episode about three times on repeat as I drifted off to sleep. That's six hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for our download numbers. Definitely. I hope your dog's feeling better. De- definitely. Uh, Jack continues... I'm very much right-leaning with my political views, voting Conservative the few times I've been able to vote. I'm, I am always keen, however, to test my political opinions. And a friend, Massive Lefty, recommend I listen to this podcast. Some episode I've listened to have made me cringe. Can't believe he really meant that. I hope that's not just our conversation making you cringe. Yeah, cringeworthy. Yeah. Um, while others, such as this one and the land tax one, have really made me pause for thought. Um, long may it continue. Hope you're both well. Well, that's very very nice of Jack, and we and we appreciate, as I said last week, we appreciate people from all parts of the political spectrum. The next one comes from Adrian. He says the NHS is, of course, a brilliant thing, and in your episode, you touched on lots of great points about how the system is currently not working. You and your guest touched on how lack of GP funding and access is leading to greater stress on hospitals, etc. My di- idea would be for the NHS to take a leaf out of so many private care providers and make it compulsory for people to have an annual health checkup with their GP. Not only would this ensure illnesses are treated earlier, but it would also ensure that vaccinations and boosters are kept up. I also think annual health checks for everyone promote a culture of talking about health and illness more. How about monthly? Oh, I mean, you, you, to, in a you way, and I, you're preaching to the choir with me and Ed because... <laughs> you're preaching to the hypochondriacs right. here. I've always got a list on the go in my phone of things that I must mention to the doctor. I do think um, 
that sort of the economics of it don't add up because if you spend that much that time doing right. checkups on people, you very rarely um, turn turn stuff up. I know a lot of the American system is based around sort of on incessant checkups and referrals, which can catch stuff and and it does catch stuff. But I think a lot of the time it's just a, not the best use of a doctor's resources. Well, I noticed in Dan Pink's book he says that you have a re- regular colonoscopy in the American yeah. system. Which is obviously something we don't do here. I mean, like, I'm all in favour of prevention. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether quite this works or not. Mm. Um, this comes from Mona Johnson, who says, "I am a one-woman promotion machine of this podcast." Excellent. My, I know it's, it's something good to hear uh, among my other clinical colleagues at our arm's length body. To echo one of your other listeners, if you want another health stroke NHS topic, might you consider mental health? Um, it's such a rich topic, but a reason to be cheerful is the increasing profile of MHFA England and mental health in schools. She also adds, self-harm is so misunderstood, maybe this is a good place to start. Um, well, funny you should say that, because that is what our live episode is going to be about, mental health. She says, sorry for increasing your workload by writing in. She read She read our minds. We don't mind her writing in, do no, we? No, no, we, we, we don't. can't reply to everybody, but we're reading every email that comes we in. We are, definitely. Uh, and this one comes from Mike Forsyth. Subject currently on plus six. Hi, Ed G. That's not, that's not Ed G. That's Ed and G, I think. Uh, Ed G it has a certain ring to it, actually. Yeah, sure. Get down with Ed G. <laughs> I'm not sure it does. You don't think so? I think it's a slippery slope. George man. Ezra isn't really called George Ezra. You see, he's George Barnett. Who did, We've been uh, lied yeah. to. Well, not really, no, but it's like his stage name. Maybe I should be Ed G. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, like Kenny G. Or Mr. T. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Uh, as a self-concept fest guy that gets political at the pub, my friends used to have a paddle of rebukes. He fosters advert circa 2010. I absolutely love the podcast. It helps me get my nerd fix without the misery of the current news political climate. I'm a keen, a keen advocate and I've currently recruited six friends to the cause. Starting to sound a bit cultish. At a recent party, a friend asked for podcast recommendations. What a party he goes to. And instantly, <laughs> instant, it sounds like a real happening thing. And Hang on. You know, we could start talking about your party days at university. Uh, they were much less glass than that. Funnily <laughs> if we didn't talk about a podcast. And instantly, yeah, no, I'm totally in a glass house on this one. And instantly, me and another uni friend, Pam, barked out reasons to be cheerful. Well done, Pam, before anyone else could answer. Neither of us knew the other was a fan. And the look, nod of knowing and appreciation was pa- palpable, like one of those 90s buddy cop movies we spent the next 20 minutes fanboy girling about our favorite episodes keep up the good work and we'll keep spreading the word i think you get a clue there that you know extra sycophancy definitely gets you read out on the podcast <laughs> i mean six I mean, the, the, when we usually read these six things out, like, i tried to get my dad to listen but he thought it was terrible i mean this this is this is mike forsyth is definitely top of the leaderboard i yes. would say Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Glenn Moore. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming. And, and you are a busy man because you, you do the comedy and you are also uh, reading the, the sport on The Breakfast Show on Absolute Radio. Yes. And since you've started that job, are people just obsessed with what time you get up? Because I did a breakfast show many years ago mm. and the, the people just always want to ask you, what time do you get up in the morning? How much sleep do you have? Yeah, people try and calculate my hours of sleep and then they compare them to 
figures of the past. So it's always Margaret Thatcher, essentially, in the four hours thing. Right, yes. Well, Donald Trump, he doesn't sleep very much. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure. You don't drink 14 Diet Cokes a day. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, But I do eat KFC with a knife and fork, so it all balances (laughs) out. Do you find the crazier the politician, the the fewer hours sleep they have? Yeah. How, How many do you go for? 12 no uh, <laughs> you, you're not a morning person no, i'm a six or seven hour person but i i hate mornings mm. i do hate mornings i'm afraid some people are just evening person people and yeah and are you a morning person uh, no not at no, all no, no. i i mean I, annabelle who i used to do the breakfast show with said that it changed her personality doing that show for years like it made her an awful person because i mean you'd, you'd never get enough sleep and then you're always sort of calculating how much you should have gotten trying to catch up as the week goes on yeah and by the time it gets to weekends i sort of overexert myself and so on saturdays it's like i'm a kid at a sleepover and it's sort of like oh my god i get to step till four in the morning okay great <laughs> so my hours are I, i'm really messing up my body clock and i'm eight Aging, I'm aging horribly. Um, so you brought in some ideas to pitch, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes. Um, what's, what's the first one you have for us? Um, I think one would be uh, adding sort of some sort of fake news element to the national curriculum. So kids are taught um, things like news bias and how to actually sort of work out sources and how to sort of trust a source. So we get a new generation of people who are actually a bit more sort of sceptical about what they hear about right so being able to spot fake news and, and not only that being able to spot it when there's an influence or an agenda yeah, and, and it, it. But, but even if there's sort of not not fake news as such but even when there's that sort of legal legally sort of sound bias you can get in sort of a tabloid press i think it's still important to know that even if for instance like i i enjoy reading the guardian but i sort of got to sort of try and make myself aware that there is still sort of a bias there and it might not be as openly sort of egregious as something like the Sun newspaper might be considered to be, but at the same time, you're still not necessarily getting that sort of full information. Ed, is that anything you've ever come across, the the press disguising opinion as news? Does that, <laughs> does that sound familiar to you? I think it's a really good point, actually, because it is quite scary, particularly in America, but and we have our own version of fake news here, but, but particularly in America, the way that fake news just takes off, doesn't it? Fortunately, because of things like Ofcom, we, we, can't, we can't have something like Fox News over here which is just so preposterous. It's just an alternative reality. And the people who are hearing about are, are under the impression that Hillary Clinton's under investigation by the FBI for a Russia scandal. It's just it's just the opposite of what's going on. Yeah. And I think it's so important. But, he, but he, uh, to, to a much sort of smaller extent in the UK, I think it's sort of important to that you sort of say to a kid, like, if you, if you see a photo in a newspaper, that's not necessarily going to be telling the whole story. Like, for instance, um, I'm I wouldn't say I'm the biggest fan of Theresa May, but there was a a photo of her visiting victims, I think, of the um, Grenfell Tower fire in hospital. And loads of people were showing a photo around, sort of saying, look at her body language. She doesn't care about those people. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't like Theresa May, but that's... That's a preposterous sort of thing yeah. to take just from that sort of photograph. And, yeah. and or at the same time, like if the idea that if, if, if you get your news from, say, a particularly sort of left wing source, then you might be under the impression that Jeremy Corbyn is being smeared more than he is, when in reality, that's just journalists sort of holding them to account. And yeah. I think if you've got to teach kids that if you see something written about a particular politician, you've got to ask yourself, would it would you consider it insane if they were saying that exact same thing about the opposition? Yes. Like the Daily Mail's sort of front page thing after Theresa May's sort of disastrous Tory party conference speech. 
the front page of a Daily Mail was sort of like rotten bad luck, a, a bad cough and letters falling down, but the old girl got through it in the end. And you sort of think, well, would the Daily Mail ever write that about Jeremy Corbyn? They wrote no, that about me a lot. That was, that was exactly their attitude <laughs> yeah, towards and it's me. Just, it's so preposterous. And if I, I, I think it's really important that because it's becoming so much more prevalent, it's becoming more of a talking point. All right, we'll, we'll have that. I think that's yep, a good idea. Definitely. Um, educating kids on, on um, news bias. Mm. What's, your, what's your next suggestion? Um, this next one I think would really um, change a lot of people's commutes. And I think is as important important as fake news and it's, it's, it's as dangerous as, as on the rise. Um, escalators particularly in um, sort of underground stations or um, in very sort of uh, heavily populated areas tend to have sort of a two-lane system and one in which you stand um, on the right-hand side if you're, if you're just going down slowly and then the left-hand side which is if you're in a rush. I think there should be a third one, a third lane which is if you're in a rush and you are also fast. Uh-huh. Because the amount, of people who Overtaking rush, lane. Yeah. the amount of people who are in a rush but aren't quick. <laughs> and it's sort of like, no, 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 it's not being in a rush isn't sort of a state of mind. It's got you've also got to be able to sort of convert that you into see, speech. You say this with a great deal of, of, of sort of yeah, passion. Are <laughs> you somebody who's quite fast up or down the escalator and you find that there are people in your way? Yeah, I'd, I'd rather race to the top and be a, be a horrible sweaty mess when I arrive. But at the same time, when someone's just painfully walking, but you can't say... You, you can't say you can't tap on the shoulder and say sorry. Can you move? How, you're, you're, how, you're going slower than the people standing still. Where are you from? I'm from Croydon. Right. Okay. So you've got that kind of London pace. Um, that's that's natural to you. That is your natural rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my my parents live in a, a very small village um, in West Sussex, I and mean, every every time I go back for Christmas, I just can't bear the idea of people pottering. Is the only way I can sort of describe it. Just for. <laughs> Just the, 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 just the, the lack of I, I I don't know it's not it's not so much speed it's just every everyone's happy to just do uh, ten minutes worth of tasks over the space of five hours on this <laughs> Sunday afternoon and I can't understand that you're not one of the slow movement no and they're, 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 yeah they're, they're, I think they're people who have lived a very 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 sort of fast life and at the age of fifty gone you know we're just going to retire and just move to a village and we're going to take things slowly yeah. at the complete expense of people in their twenties <laughs> you'd have to redesign all the escalators presumably to allow that'd, three that'd lanes that'd be good for work though and stimu- a bit of stimulus into the economy all that think, money put into TFL I think it's a sort of it's a kind of Franklin it's FDR yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Lloyd is FDR yeah. with his new escalator plan yeah uh, Glenn what, what do you have next I think um, for everything that's added to the school curriculum the Department of Education should have to provide an example of how you could possibly use that later in life so as you're studying algebra you should be given a, you should be given an example of how you will, you can then use algebra later in life because because uh, uh, otherwise you just get completely switched off to it because you think how when when on earth is this ever going to happen right so yeah so if they're telling me why I'm learning about an oxbow lake exactly onion skin weathering if it's put yes. into context then they should and as a result an oxbow then, lake oxbow so I remember learning about oxbow lakes in geography but because they never told me how it would come in handy I can't remember anything apart from the phrase oxbow lakes. That's the thing. I can remember so many sort of acronyms or ways to remember things that I don't understand. Like yes. things like sine and cos. I, I remember there's so many sort of rhymes oh, and stuff. Yes. I remember I, I, I remember the names of them now, but I don't know what they do. Yeah. I wouldn't know. <laughs> like, I've got no idea how they function. But I think as well it would mean um a lot of the stuff would be ta- a lot of the stuff added to the curriculum would then be more relevant to sort of later in life. Like I, one of my A levels was in classics, so it was useless. The square of the two sides of a right angle triangle are equal to the hypotenuse. How's that useful? That's very good. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, a good motto to have in life. Definitely. <laughs> it's, re- I think it's a good question. Is relevance relevant, if you see what I mean? Does it need mm. to be relevant? 
I think it does. Sure, surely you did it classics. Does. What did you do? Classics A level? Did you say? Yeah, like it then helped in my English degree. Right. That occasionally, I could sort of pull the Odyssey out of the bag as a yeah. quote. But then, but, but other, than, I mean, the English degree then didn't directly help me. It helps you to crack jokes on Absolute Radio. I'm sure it's sort of direct. Oh yeah, no, really classics. on brand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as Plato would have said. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I'll make a confession here, which is going to sound. Uh, slightly maybe not what you'd expect me to say i wish we'd learned more about like the british empire i don't mean in a sort of rah-rah way i mean in a sort of negative way quite a lot we didn't really learn about you know when i think about the history i was being taught in school it was this kind of modular history and so you didn't really get a sense of the context of the country no you were living in and i think as well if you're taught about the british empire then you wouldn't necessarily potentially have gone into say the Brexit vote going, well, countries will be queuing around the block to form trade yeah, deals. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. I don't think they I think are. it may be that there was this sort of sense of that it was too controversial. And but I don't know why. But you should be able to, you, should yeah, be able to like, you, you shouldn't be able to listen to the good stuff about your country if you can't listen to the bad stuff. You can't just have one. You should, you, you know. Yeah, I, but were you taught about that kind of, with the British No, Empire? it was, like I say, it was like a, a bunch of kings and queens and stuff. And, and there was so much, like subsequently. But I mean, adult, later on, I mean, learned, it's like a GCSE, O level, or GCSE in your case. No, I'll tell you, we did, um, we did John F. Kennedy, we did the uh, Second World War and the um, and and First World War and the Somme, and we did a little bit of Henry VIII stuff. I think that that that's. And did, would you have learned about the British? History, I remember. Never, no. It was all. It was school. very sort of Germany related, but not necessarily. It was more of the interwar so stuff, like the inflation strange, crisis. Isn't it? mm. It's like because it was it, the whole idea was learning to learn. Okay, well that's fine, but it's sort of like you you didn't get. And I think there are lots and lots of people today who just don't have a sense about the country's history, apart from in a very sepia tinted way. No, it's exactly that. When the, you know what what people pick up about the British Empire, a lot of people is just oh the sun never set on it, and we gave them railways, and it was all wonderful. Well, I learned more about the British Empire from Julian. In the Crown, which was a thing that was on when I was growing up, it was probably a bit, bit you were a bit young for it. It was on, but I, it was yeah. too boring for me. Uh, about more from that than I did from the history curriculum. Mm. I don't want to sound like the Daily Mail here. What do we want? More, more period dramas? <laughs> when do we want them now? Uh, Glenn, people can hear you on the Absolute Radio Breakfast Show, and then you you're going to be playing around the country if people just look you up on Twitter or whatever. They yes, the best way, isn't it? Yeah, people easy, know easy how to do way. these things. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to explain it. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks thank so much. You very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And that was our podcast, another bumper one this week. Bumper. It was bumper. and Bumper to bumper. And the next time we, we sit here and record another podcast between now and then, we will have made our West End debut. Trod the boards. Yeah. Break a leg. Name up in Don't lights. say break a leg to either of us. We might, <laughs> we might your, break a leg. Not with your track on the, on the way onto the stage. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think of any theatrical superstitions. You can't don't wear any green. That's an old theatrical superstition. I can't quite remember why. I think there's something you're supposed to do with mirrors as well, but I can't quite remember. Apparently, <laughs> go on. So a French person told me that the French tradition is not to say break a leg, but merde, which doesn't mean break a leg. No, it means take a poop. Well, make a bowel movement. Yeah. Wow. Well, will you be doing, doing that not, before? No, no, de- no, definitely. Uh, and of course, if it goes well, well, we're going to try and do more, aren't we? We've, mm. We we ju- just to, because we're getting people increasingly saying to us, "When are you going to announce your new dates?" We're just trying to find the sort of venues, times when we can do it consistent with other things. So, um, what? Watch this space. Oh, and I will mention. You know, we were talking about the uh, 
the various bits and pieces, t-shirts and things before. If you uh, if you're thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind treating myself to one of those, we'll put a link up in the show notes for the uh, for this episode. So if you look at the notes on the podcast, we always put up links to the various guests and bits and pieces, but you'll be able to find uh, a link and then go on a shopping spree, a drunken shopping, a drunken online shopping spree. Should we do some thank yous? Yeah. Yeah, so thanks to Director General of the Swedish Prison and Probation Service, Niels Urberg. Yeah. <laughs> or Oberg. <laughs> <laughs> Are you like a typical Brit abroad when you go on holiday, just saying things loudly in English? Loud voices, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I should let you do the other pronunciations as well, then. Okay. Well, thanks to Vicky Price, who I believe is just pronounced Price, despite the fact that it's it got a Y in there somewhere, uh, economist and author of Prisonomics, and the wonderful Lord Charlie Faulkner. Are we, Lord Faulkner of Thoroton, actually. Of Thoroton. Yes. And it was very exciting for me, yet again, to have another Lord. You've lots of Lords in, my... in your house. Lords yeah. are leaping. They are. <laughs> we didn't ask him about the fact he drinks 14 Diet Cokes a day. No, but maybe we can have him back and ask him about yeah, that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But thank the Lord. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it never, does, never gets old to me, that. Thank the Lord. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, and Glenn Moore, bright young comedian. He's, he's ever so good, and you can hear him on the Absolute Radio Breakfast Show. So this is an unusual turn, uh, turn of events. I've thanked, thanked all the guests, which means you have to thank everyone else. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think you do that bit so well. <laughs> you mean I can remember the names? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, first of all, I'll thank our announcer. Girl loved us. Yeah. And uh, then I will thank the guy who made the iDents. Ed Seed. James Deacon. James Deacon. Uh, and then the, the music was, of course, written by... Ed Seed. And then there was our wonderful artwork... Emily Power. ...done by Emily Power, who's also done the T-shirts and whatnot. And our programme was produced by... Emma Corsham. Uh, with policy research and assistance from... Alex Vice Bryson and Lindsay Todd. Look at that. You did it. You put thank your you mind to much. it. I believed in you. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, he's been Ed G, apparently. He's been that... Annoying bloke who can pronounce Swedish names. <laughs> and these have been the reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.